You're listening to Expanding Horizons, the podcast of the Unitarian Church of South Australia, a home of progressive spirituality and free religious thought and action since 1854. The views expressed in these podcasts are those of the speaker and are not intended to represent the position of the church itself or of the worldwide Unitarian Universalist movement. For more information, visit unitariansa.org.au. It's a traditional part of our service that we light the flame on this chalice. And it can signify many things, in particular that we come together before this flame as a community, as a caring community, and a haven from the troubles and strife in the world, a place where everyone is welcome. And now I'd like to invite Peter to come forward and read a poem, very relevant to today's talk. Andrew Barton Patterson, as you probably well know, was one of the quintessential Australian bush poets. He uh, first supplied a poem to the Sydney Bulletin around, I think, 1889, and his first poem was Clancy of the Overflow. But that's not what I'm going to read this morning. I'm going to read A Bush Christening. On the outer Baku, where churches are few, and men of religion are scanty, on a road never crossed except by folk that are lost, one Michael McGee had a shanty. Now this Mike was the dad of a ten-year-old lad, plump, healthy, and stoutly conditioned. He was strong as the best, but poor Mike had no rest, for the youngster had never been christened. And his wife used to cry, if the Darlin should die, St. Peter would not recognise him. But by luck he survived till a preacher arrived, who agreed straight away to baptise him. Now the artful young rogue, while they held their collogue, with his ear to the keyhole was listening, and he muttered in fright while his features turned white, what the devil and all is this christening? He was none of your dolts, he had seen them brand colts. And it seemed to his small understanding, if the man in the frock made you one of the flock, it must mean something very like branding. So away with a rush he set off to the bush, while the tears in his eyelids they glistened. Oh, it is outrageous, says he, to brand youngsters like me. Oh, we dashed of our stop to be christened. Like a young native dog, he ran into a log, and his father, with language uncivil, Never heeding the priest, cried aloud in his haste, Come out and be christened, you devil. But he lay there as snug as a bug in a rug, and his parents in vain might reprove him. Till his reverence spoke, he was fond of a joke. I've a notion, he said, that will move him. Poke a stick up the log, give the spalbeen a prog, poke him, Isy, don't hurt him or maim him. Tis not long that he'll stand. I've the water at hand. As he rushes out this end, I'll name him. Here he comes, and for shame you've forgotten the name. Is it Patsy or Michael or Dennis? Here the youngster rang out, and the priest gave a shout. Take your chance then with McGuinness. 
as the howling young cub ran away to the scrub where he knew that pursuit would be risky, the priest, as he fled, flung a flask at his head that was labelled McGuinness's Whiskey. <laughs> and McGuinness McGee has been made a JP. And the thing that he hates more than sin is to be asked by the folk who have heard of the joke how he came to be christened McGuinness. Well done. We have a hymn, and hymn sheets have been handed out, so I hope you can all sing along. Come and go with me. So, thanks Robin. Will you play it through once, and then we'll stand and sing as we are able. Thank you. Another traditional part of our service is lighting a candle and expressing a joy or concern that we have, that we're willing to share with others right now. Any others? If not, I'll just light a final candle representing those joys and concerns that we all have but are not sharing right now. Let's just take a moment to pause and reflect on what we've heard. Join with me in prayer, if you will. Today's been a day of hearing some joy at family news. And to all of us, family and friends are so important. We pray that ourselves, our family and friends remain happy and healthy as we all age and we play our part in bringing about good relationships with family and friends as far as we are able. So may it be. So may it be. So may it be. Now, um, a reading from a speech by Stan Grant. I'll uh, bring a microphone up to Janet. Now this is an extract from a speech about the Australian dream given by Stan Grant in 2015. We are an extraordinary country. We are in so many respects the envy of the world. If I was sitting here where my friends are tonight, I would be arguing passionately for this country. 
But I stand here with my ancestors, and the view looks very different from where I stand. We have our heroes, Albert Nabajira, painted the soul of this nation, Vincent Lingiari put his hand out for Gough Whitlam to pour the sand of his country through his fingers and say, this is my country. Kathy Freeman lit the torch of the Olympic Games. But every time we are lured into the light, we are mugged by the darkness of this country's history. Of course, racism is in the Australian dream. It is self-evident that it's killing the Australian dream. But we are better than that. Thanks, Janet. Well, that leads into my reflections today on Australia, or as I put it in the notice, Australia, with Australia Day coming up. I'm not going to focus on the day so much, but it is a good question. What is Australia? What is our place in Australia? What are the spiritual implications of us being here in this time and place? These are topics as vast as the continent itself. Looking back, I see four phases of Australian history. When cultural interaction and spiritual expression have simultaneously evolved. The pre-colonial, the colonial era, the honeymoon period of a few decades of multiculturalism, and here and now where we stand at a crossroads. First, there was the long period when Aboriginal people had the continent to themselves, in terms of human beings, that is, for over 60,000 years, and they had their dream time to explain the cosmos, the land, and their connection to it all. One of the dream time stories about Seven Sisters relates to a cluster of stars in the Taurus constellation, which now appears to the naked eye to comprise six stars. The story is common to many Aboriginal groups across Australia, but is also known in the, in the stories of several other cultures. In ancient Greece, the story was told of the Pleiades, the seven sisters who were turned into stars. Astronomers have established that there are indeed seven major stars in the cluster, but over the course of tens of thousands of years, one of the stars which would have been visible to human eyes on Earth has shifted position closer to one of the other stars, such that they can't any longer be distinguished easily. From this one can deduce that the story is far older than the oldest pyramids, probably older than the oldest cave paintings that have been found. And these incredibly ancient stories are being passed on today. Then the British came. When Captain James Cook planted a flag in the ground, he was following a custom of the European colonial powers in claiming the entire land, such as received the pointy end of the flag, in the name of the relevant monarch. It was as nationalistic and just as illogical as an American planting an American flag on the moon. The flag planting exercise assumed that the indigenous inhabitants could not own the land. The New South Wales governor in 1835, as Aboriginal resistance grew at the margins of settlement, 
made it explicit, claiming that the land was terra nullius, Latin for an empty land. And there I see a rather disturbing cartoon about the myth of terra nullius. Nobody there. As the American scientist Jared Diamond put it, the British brought with them guns, germs and steel. For complex historical and geographical reasons, they had better military technology. Bit by bit, they pushed the indigenous inhabitants away from the English settlements, away from the farming areas, into the interior. They also brought with them the Bibles and the certainty of traditional Christian belief and the confidence that comes from being backed by an almighty male God. Of course, I'm speaking in generalities. There were a few Muslims, Jews and even Unitarians sprinkled amongst the overwhelming majority of Europeans arriving in the 19th century who were Christians. As you're probably aware, the 19th century colonial view of Aboriginal spirituality was worse than dismissive. They thought that when Aboriginal individuals said the magic words and were sprinkled with water, the individual would become part of the Christian tribe and another soul would be saved. Very much a process of religion rather than spirituality. The creation of Australia as a separate nation in 1901 didn't change that thinking. And the condescending colonial attitude endured into the 20th century, and it continues in some quarters even now. The attitude was epitomised in the submission that Winston Churchill made to the Palestine Royal Commission in 1937, known as the Peel Commission after Lord Peel, the presiding commissioner. Allow me a brief diversion to explain. The Peel Commission's task was to investigate unrest in Palestine, which Britain had taken as a colonial territory after beating the Turks in World War I. The reason for indigenous unrest was easy to discover. The Arab population were concerned that in a generation, the proportion of the population made up by Europeans had increased from very small numbers to become over a quarter of the total population. When the British took over the place, the Jewish population was around 10%. It had already grown dramatically from about 3% 20 years earlier. By the end of the 1930s, after a certain amount of legal immigration and a lot of illegal immigration as well, the Jewish population had risen to nearly 30%. The question for the colonial rulers was how to divide up the territory in a way that would satisfy the Zionist promoters of a Jewish homeland while minimising conflict with the indigenous Arab population. The submission of Winston Churchill MP to the Commission revealed the mainstream attitude toward indigenous Australians as well as indigenous Palestinians. I do not admit that the dog in the manger has the final right to the manger even though he may have lain there for a very long time. I do not admit that right. I do not admit, for instance, that a great wrong has been done to the Red Indians of America or the black people of Australia. I do not admit that a wrong has been done to those people by the fact that a stronger race, a higher grade race, or at any rate a more worldly wise race, to put it that way, has come in and taken their place. Fast forward to the 1970s. Along the way, our allegiance shifted from England to the new superpower, the USA. In a 1971 
federal court case, although Justice Blackburn felt constrained by legal precedent not to grant land rights to the Aboriginal people being considered, he observed, the evidence shows a subtle and elaborate system highly adapted to the country in which the people led their lives, which provided a stable order of society and was remarkably free from the vagaries of personal whim or influence. If ever a system could be called a government of laws and not of men, it is that shown in the evidence before me. The 1970s were also significant for the adoption of multiculturalism as a bipartisan national policy. After World War II, there was such a shortage of workers that many had been welcomed from various parts of Europe, especially from Italy, Greece and the Baltic states. By the 1970s, they and their descendants were a substantial element of society. The national government of the day consciously chose to move on from an Anglo-centric assimilationist approach to immigration, not to a melting pot society where everyone had to be the same, but an ethnic pluralism where each could retain their precious cultural heritage while committing to a just and democratic Australia. More like a fruit salad, where the individual components lost none of their individual flavour while contributing to a pleasant whole. Spirituality in Australia also changed in the 1970s. Increasingly, young people found they couldn't accept the image of the old male god with a beard sitting on a throne, the benevolent dictator, or the old images of angels playing among the clouds and the fires literally burning in hell. With the degree of social liberation came spiritual diversity, divergence and exploration. The trend was a shift from the moral development of society to the moral development of the individual. So-called New Age belief systems emerged, often derived from Hindu, Buddhist and pagan beliefs and practices. Although notorious, in truth these were explored only by a minority. Much more widespread and significant was the shift of the average Australian away from traditional church beliefs and practices to an uncertain individual agnosticism or atheism. While the attestation to Christian belief in the national census remained high, church attendance numbers commenced a steady decline. As an Aboriginal elder in Central Australia said to Sydney anthropologist Bill Stanner, white man got no dreaming, him go another way. White man, him go different. Him got road belong himself. Let's hear some more music from Robin. Uh, so I'm going to be singing and I've had requests for microphone for my voice, so I hope this works.
Thank you, Robert. In the 21st century, although hundreds of different cultures are represented in Australia, the commitment to multiculturalism has faltered. Our political and military ties to the USA inevitably open the door to transmission of cultural shifts in the USA as well. Some of our local politicians have learnt from and imitated the politics of anti-elitism. And really, this is nothing more than the democratic process, political leaders using whatever they can to appeal to voters. Looking back on the last quarter of the 20th century, it now seems exceptional when both sides of politics in our two-party system were committed to accepting the cultures and concerns of those who had come from across the seas. For the first time, this also extended to a recognition of our Indigenous inhabitants through the 1992 High Court Mabo case and subsequent native title legislation. In the last 30 years, however, in a calculated bid to win over those with racist tendencies, the politics of division emerged as politicians promised to protect mainstream society from migrants, refugees and Aborigines. These issues of race are inextricably tied up with the politics and the distribution of wealth in our society. A fellow uh, called Oscar Ameringer said, politics is the gentle art of getting votes from the poor and campaign funds from the rich by promising to protect each from the other. And at this point, I'm conscious of several of the Unitarian principles. The inherent worth and dignity of every person, justice, equity and compassion in human relations, and an emphasis on truth and democracy. If I am never to speak of politics, then I can't speak about racism or justice or democracy. All I'm left with is... You're all very nice people. You can go home as smug as a bug in a rug, and I'll see you next week. The fact is, there is a tension in our two-party system between those who want to see the wealthy unburdened by taxation, the proceeds of which end up being spent on social services, and on the other hand, those who wish to redistribute wealth by taxing the wealthier and using that money for provision of public education, public health services, and many other facilities and payments. The wicked problem for those who promote the welfare of the wealthy is that there are many more people who are not wealthy than those who are. In the Australian electoral system, which is more or less democratic, the party representing the interests of the wealthy would never be voted in if people voted purely in terms of their material self-interest. The political imperative for those who represent the interests of the wealthy must be to get those who are less well-off to vote against their material interest. Ever since the 1960s, at least, one way to co-opt the vote of the poor has been to appeal to social conservatism, for example, against women's choice in abortion laws, against divorce, against homosexuality, against gay marriage, and so on. In the last 30 years, another kind of appeal has been made to the less well-off, who are often less well-educated and more tribal, Fanning the flames of racism works politically. The promise of protection against the other, whether they be migrants, refugees or Aborigines, can induce people to vote against their material interests. We stand at a crossroads in terms of Australia's multiculturalism, as I don't know how this latest political trend will play out. 
We're also at the crossroads in terms of spiritual expression in this country. An increasing number of people realise that we can learn from Aboriginal spirituality. A shift in consciousness from the concept that we are humans here to exploit the earth and other creatures, which one might conclude from the opening chapters of the Bible, to a realisation that we are part of an integrated ecology. As the seventh Unitarian principle would have it, we are part of the interdependent web of all existence. Humanity has had an impact on the land and the waters. The land and the waters have an impact on us. We are all part of the same creation. Although a majority of Australians still register as Christians in the census, the number is declining steadily. Those that attend church regularly are no more than 20% of the population. Most people simply get on with their lives, sitting on the spectrum between atheism and a vague agnosticism, perhaps only reflecting on the meaning of it all, the hunger for justice and the desire to repent and reform, only when faced with grief, emotional devastation or a health crisis. We are here for them. Little communities of caring people like this one are a haven for those who seek meaning in life. The search for meaning is not only treasured as one of our Unitarian principles, it is the most noble of human pursuits, unleashing our imagination on the task of becoming peaceful, loving and wise human beings. listening to Expanding Horizons, the podcast of the Unitarian Church of South Australia, a home of progressive spirituality and free religious thought and action since 1854. The views expressed in these podcasts are those of the speaker and are not intended to represent the position of the church itself or of the worldwide Unitarian Universalist movement. For more information, visit unitariansa.org.au.
Thank you, Robin.